You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you will, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 14, 19 through 22. The book of Acts, chapter 14, you'll find this on page 923 of the Pew Bible. Acts 14, verses 19 through 22. Hear the word of God. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. I understand that the translation puts a break between 23 and 24, but we're stopping at 22. So after healing the lame man in Lystra, Paul and Barnabas obviously moved on but not before they had been idolized as gods. You remember how the priest of Zeus had prepared to worship them by offering sacrifices. With great difficulty, these two men dissuaded the crowds from such blasphemy. And to state the obvious, the miracle had made a powerful impact on the people. But as with all miraculous deeds, this was not enough to convert them. They had been impressed by the supernatural, but they had not been changed by it. As a matter of fact, miracles never convert anybody. That only happens by the Spirit's regenerating power. Some people I've heard long wistfully for the apostolic era of miracles. Oh, if I, if I could see the lame man healed, I'd believe. My faith would be established. But you'll remember how the rich man found himself in anguish among the flames of hell. And he asked Abraham at that po at po point to send Lazarus to warn his five brothers. But this is what Abraham said in response. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, what greater miracle could there be than rising from the dead? And yet God ordained the preaching of Christ as the means of converting 
souls. And the promise of the Spirit's influence is extended to no other means. And unless God's Spirit gives new birth to the sinner, he'll never be converted. Jesus rose from the dead. He even appeared to many, 500 at one time. And yet today, the majority of the world doesn't believe in Christ. And this passage gives further proof that miracles cannot change a sinful heart. It is only the Holy Spirit accompanying his word that can give new birth to a sinner. And this text illustrates it because the people who praised Paul and Barnabas turned on them. Perhaps they resented Paul's admonishment, dissuading them from worshiping them, and it made them feel foolish. We don't know. Whatever the reason, the multitude quickly went from hot to cold. First, they wanted to worship Paul and Barnabas as gods come in the flesh, but now they considered them as the chief targets for their malice. How do we explain that? Men whom they thought worthy of worship, now they determined were deserving of death. Today, Hosanna. Tomorrow, crucify him. <laughs> there was no conversion here. That's the problem. And of course, this turn of events did not take place in a total vacuum. The same Jews who forced Paul and Barnabas from Pisidian Antioch showed up in Lystra. And obviously, they had been stalking the missionaries, hunting them like prey. And when they arrived in town, they set to work stirring up the multitude. They poisoned the Lystrian mines, and they persuaded them to persecute the apostles. And so they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. They hauled through the gates of that city what they thought was his corpse. Stoning, as you know, was a gruesome way to execute criminals. The stones were hurled, the bones were crushed, the flesh was cut, and the life was destroyed. Paul's body apparently had been bruised and beaten to the point of appearing as if he were dead. And the memory of this event remained in his mind for the rest of his life, as you can imagine. Later on, when he was writing to the Galatian church, he closed out his epistle by saying this, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. And we can be sure that this included the scars that were made by those stones, marks that were constant reminders of suffering for Christ. And one of the most amazing aspects, I think, of this whole episode is Paul's survival. <laughs> they thought he was dead. Christ's power is what kept him alive. It was a miracle. And even though it's not explicitly mentioned, it was obviously implied. To Timothy, this is what he said. You have followed my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all, the congregations that they had planted. And they did this at the risk of their own lives. Courageous men. 
Returning so soon to Lystra, Iconium, Pisidian, Antioch was precarious, and who knew what would happen? They could have been stoned again. But their love for the fledgling church was stronger than their love of life itself. And I think Paul and Barnabas realized just how important it was to follow up and to nurture new believers. So Paul's practice, as we see throughout his ministry, was to revisit the churches that he planted and to keep in close contact. And he would speak to them seasonably, and he would speak to them to the point, and he would do it for the Lord unto their edification. And there's three elements of what they typically said that I want us to consider. Number one, Luke tells us that the two men strengthened the souls of the disciples. And they accomplished this by continuing to instruct them in the Christian faith. Their aim was to enforce or reinforce the gospel by teaching the whole counsel of God. Everything Christ taught was fair game. And they tried to train them to observe it. You see, spiritual strength is derived from knowing and practicing the truth. Consider the example of Job, who had discipled all sorts of people, apparently. In chapter 4, Eliphaz said this, Behold, you've instructed many, and you've strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you've made firm the feeble knees. And this had been Job's practice, and it was used to strengthen others. Some were upheld by his counsels. Others were made firm by his teaching. They were fortified by, against temptations. They were supported under their burdens. And they were comforted in their afflictions. And that's the kind of discipleship that Paul and Barnabas were providing the church plants. Teaching. They were instructing the early believers in sound Christian doctrine. And I think there's a valuable lesson for us to learn, especially in a culture like ours. For many, the mention of sound doctrine raises all kinds of red flags, especially in a Presbyterian church. That squelches spiritual life, don't you know? It makes you stale. The frozen chosen. It's so divisive. You know something? Nothing can be further from the truth. It's just the opposite. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Those who are true disciples of Jesus will abide in his word. And this will make them free. It'll free you from the guilt and the power and the penalty of sin. That's incredible. It'll free you from spiritual bondage and free you in the service of Christ. And this implies, I think, a constant exposure to and immersion in the Bible. We learn doctrines and we cherish them. Yes, they can be divisive if used the wrong way. Yes, they can make us stale if our knowledge puffs us up. But we put, put forth the effort to seek to grasp them and we cherish them. 
The disciple continues in it, and the disciple adheres to it, and we embrace those truths. And if we do this, we'll know the truth, whatever is needful, whatever is profitable, and it will set us free. And that's a privilege to know the truths and their connections and all their implications, that's a privilege. We have in these sacred pages the very thoughts of the infinite God, and especially in this messianic age when the canon is complete. What a privilege it is. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples? Just to give you an idea of how lofty this privilege is, this is what Jesus said. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Just the fact of living in this era. What a privilege we enjoy in living in the age of the already not yet. Already in Christ, we, have, we are forgiven and accepted, but not yet are we openly acknowledged before a watching universe. Already we sense the love of God and have this peace in our conscience. We have the joy of the Holy Spirit and the hope of glory, but not yet are we fully and forever freed from sin and misery. We know these things because God has revealed them, and today we live in a sight and sound generation. It's all about the visual. Some of you, I don't know, about this is probably exposing my age, but some of you remember the infamous slogan of tennis great Andre Agassi or Agassi. Image is everything. According to trend reports, 65 to 80% of people in this country describe themselves as visual learners. 65 to 80%. That's not wrong. It's not wrong to be a visual learner. But too many of them have given up on learning in any other way. The sheer volume of images of our websites, our social media, and our press is simply overwhelming. They evoke emotions, they stir up our desires, they make impressions upon our minds, but they cannot set you free. There is no promise attached to them. And it's rare to find people in our day who think rationally and live biblically because faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Paul knew that, and he knew that the disciples would be strengthened by believing and practicing sound doctrine. And this is what produces deep within the heart the greatest feelings of joy. We talked about sin in there this morning. And when I was done, I had joy in my heart. How does that happen? It's joy unspeakable and full of glory. A joy that our circumstances cannot smother. And as people of God, I think we should imitate the example of Paul and Barnabas because the Bible teaches good words spoken in season strengthen weak souls. It's gospel truth that sets us free and it's gospel truth that makes us strong. And I wonder if there is someone here who is in need of spiritual strength. You know, difficult circumstances of life, 
lifelong struggles, perhaps relational burdens. Some may be deeply troubled over some strong besetting sin. Whatever the reason, you somehow need to be strengthened. At church or among friends, you need to be built up by the truth, and you need, among other things, a daily dose of sound biblical doctrine. So let's follow the example of Paul and seek opportunities to speak a word in season. Because as in Proverbs 25, the Sol Solomon says, a word fitly spoken, apples of gold in a setting of silver. What a wonderful way to put it. He likens godly biblical encouragement to a silver tray of delicious fruit. That's what he's saying. Good biblical counsel spoken in season is like a delicacy for the soul. That's first. Second, Luke tells us that the two men encouraged them to continue in the faith, and here they exhorted those early believers to persevere in Christ. In other words, be who you are. You have doctrine, live in accord with it. Paul says to the Ephesians, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. As one of my beloved professors used to say, remember what you know. Live life in light of God's kingdom. You're in it. He made you an heir of salvation. You are a fellow heir with Christ. So walk agreeably to it. You're destined for glory, so don't grovel in the dust. You're called Christian for a reason. Behave yourself with that in mind. Not only are we to accept and embrace these doctrinal truths, but we're to strive to live by them. It was this kind of exhortation that the two missionaries gave the churches because they not only strengthened them with the truth, but they encouraged them in the faith. Strengthening builds up the mind. Encouraging motivates the will. You're a prince of heaven. You're a princess of heaven. Now go and live like that. See the value and the benefit and the necessity of holding on to this faith once delivered? Do you want to give your life to these earthly trinkets? That's the kind of exhortation that's essential for effective Christian discipleship. We not just know the truth, but we contend earnestly for it. Not just against opponents. We contend earnestly by fighting against our own depravity. I'm a child of God. What did Luther used to say to the devil whenever he came to him? Be gone, I'm baptized. I'm a child of the king. You and I both know the kind of unworthy and wicked thoughts that invade our minds all the time. It's constant. It's a daily battle to believe in Christ and to live for him. It's no easier for me than it is for you. I struggle every single day. But here's the encouragement that he's got my back. He's accomplished my salvation, and he encourages me to press on. And that's what the apostles did to this, these churches. They addressed the heart. 
they knew that those recent converts needed a lot of encouragement because the Christian life is not easy. It's filled with difficulties. There are discouragements. These men have been run out of town and Paul had been stoned. And they exemplified the kind of perseverance to which the Christian is called. So don't let go. Hang on. What God has in store for us is absolutely amazing. Jesus will return. He'll raise up our bodies. He'll welcome us into heaven. And never again to all eternity will, he, will we be tempted or suffer any kind of trial. And let's not miss the lesson here about the significance of encouragement. There is no telling how important a word of exhortation can be in one's life. Sometimes a seemingly insignificant word can make all the difference. Let me tell you a story. Sir Walter Scott, he was the Scottish historian, writer, and poet. When Sir Walter Scott was a boy, he was considered, surprisingly by most, to be, to put it bluntly, a dimwit. In school, it is said that he spent more time in the corner with a dunce cap on his head than anyone else. And this was a source of great shame and discouragement for him. But when he was about 12 or 13 years old, he happened to be in a house where some famous literary guests were being entertained. One of them was Robert Burns, the famous, famous Scottish poet. Burns was standing and admiring a picture under which was written the couplet of a stanza. And he inquired concerning the author, who wrote this? And nobody seemed to know who it was, but timidly, a 12-year-old boy crept up to his side, identified as Sir Walter Scott. And he quoted the rest of the poem from memory. And Burns was surprised and delighted at this. And laying his hand on the boy's head, he exclaimed, ah, and this is Scottish. Ah, Bernie, you'll be a great man in Scotland someday. And from that day, Sir Walter Scott was a changed person. He went on to become a great man, just as Robert Burns had predicted. And in one sense, it was that one word of encouragement that set him on the road to greatness. You never know. Sometimes one word of encouragement can sustain the weary Christian. And I imagine you could point to a person or a conversation in your life that made all the difference. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. But let me move on. Third and finally, the two said, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And by this forewarning, Paul and Barnabas aimed at preparing the disciples. New converts are often surprised at the hardships that they encounter right off the bat. Because when the devil loses his grip on a soul, he goes on the attack. He'll try anything and he'll try everything in an attempt to win back that sinner. He'll scare the convert with persecution. He'll deceive or try to the convert with false teaching. He'll try to seduce the convert with worldly pleasure. And he, he knows our weaknesses. He is skilled in tailoring his temptations to the individual convert. And at the same time, the world turns against him and his own heart is ready to betray him. 
So once the honeymoon stage wears off, if there is one, he'll face many tribulations. And the sooner he realizes that, the better prepared he'll be to face them. All Christians should expect to experience tribulations, many of them. The Lord Jesus did. Should we expect any different? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he's fully trained will be like his teacher. So we share in the sufferings of Christ. We take up our cross daily. Never doubt for a moment the significance and value of persevering. Blessed, said James, is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And here he's referring, obviously, to a believer who patiently and constantly endures the trial. You see, the unbeliever will truly suffer, but he will not patiently endure. He suffers unwillingly with complaints and criticisms and blasphemies. But the Christian perseveres. He bears affliction with patience. Always? No. Is he a stoic? No. We all fail. But that's the habit of the Christian's life. For the most part, we bear it, recognizing the hand of God in it. And James says that when we've stood the test, he gives the crown of life. As a crown, it signals the dignity that we have for suffering in the name of Christ. He gives it as the prize for running the race and reaching the end. And we need to remind ourselves and others of the need for perseverance. The importance of this for the Christian life cannot be overemphasized because whoever does not bear his own cross and come after Christ cannot be his disciple. Unqualified. That's a recurring theme throughout the New Testament. No cross, no crown. And to the one who endures, not as wildly successful, but the one who endures, he'll give a crown. Dante Rossetti, the famous 19th century poet and artist, was once approached by an elderly man. The old fellow had some sketches and drawings that he wanted Rossetti to examine and to judge if they were any good or if they at least showed potential talent. Rossetti looked them over carefully and after the first few, he knew that they were worthless, showing not the least sign of artistic talent. Being a kind person, Rossetti told the elderly man as gently as possible that the pictures were without much value and showed little talent. He was sorry, but he could not lie to the man, and the visitor was disappointed, but he seemed to expect Rossetti's judgment. He then apologized for taking up Rossetti's time, but asked if he would just look at a few more drawings, some that were done by a young art student. For listening, for more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.